This is Real Presence Live on the RPR Network, bringing you stories of faith and hope through local hosts and guests from across the Upper Midwest. Now, back to the show. And thanks for sticking with us this morning on Wednesday, the 28th. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about something uh, that's been a hot topic lately um, and always been sort of something that I think a lot of Catholics have difficulty understanding. Uh, Edward Penton from the National Catholic Register is joining us, and he's actually joining us live uh, from the land of Our Lady's Dowry, uh, which is a medieval term for England. Uh, Welcome, Edward. Hi, good to be with you. Could you tell our listeners just a little bit, I mean, you do so many things, um, but if they haven't seen your name before, which is probably unlikely uh, since you've written a lot of articles, could you just give them a little bit of background on on who you are and and, uh, what you do? Sure. Um, Yes, well, I come from uh, Canterbury in England originally. I'm actually not there. I'm in Rome at the moment, but uh, I was Ah. there last week. Um, But yes, I I come from there, and uh, I, um, I did some time working for... Vatican Radio back in the early 2000s, then I moved into freelance journalism for, for different uh, Catholic and secular publications, uh, including Newsweek and uh, the Catholic Herald, and uh, and also, of course, the National Catholic Register, and then I, I went uh, full-time with the National Catholic Register as a Rome correspondent uh, about six years ago. Excellent, excellent. So you're... Uh you're up on your Catholic news and, and all things Catholic. Um, as I mentioned, yeah. as we're sort of uh, coming into this a hot topic, uh, it's always been kind of a hot topic, and especially the secular media has difficulty understanding things. Um, you know, uh, trying to get reliable Catholic news out of them is, is pretty near worthless, so <laughs> that's why it's great right. to have sources like the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency and, and others that are able to, to you know, actually explain, okay, this is what this means, this is what that means. So recently, uh, a thing the topic that's been on a lot of people's minds um, is the recent motu proprio, uh, which is a fancy Latin term, issued by Pope Francis. Maybe we should start out with explaining what the heck a motu proprio is and what that means. Obviously, it's a Latin term, but what does it mean? What does it involve? Um, that sort of stuff. Sure. Well, a motu proprio is, is essentially a decree, a papal decree, and it means it's been taken on the Pope's own initiative. There's been no um, uh, reason uh, for him to take it, apart from the only re- reason that he has. Nobody's asked him to do it. He's done, done it on his own in- initiative. Um, and it's one of the, the methods the Church uses to, uh, to, to, to basically legislate or to, to rather um, implement a, the will of the Pope, basically. Um, and this usually involves um, either founding a new institution within the church or changing some minor changes, usually to do with uh, um, just church, the way the church uh, is run. Um, but it can also be to create new statutes or to um, start a new academy or, or something like that. So there's various different reasons um, for the Pope to use this facility. And uh, as we know, he used it again. Uh, to implement this this uh, decree on the restrictions to the traditional Latin Mass. Right. Um, and, and our listeners might be familiar with some of the other uh, names of papal documents. Probably the one people are most familiar with is an encyclical. How is an encyclical different uh, from a motu proprio? 
And what other kinds of uh, papal documents are there? I know there's fancy Latin names uh, for <laughs> for all of them, and sometimes you hear, yeah. "Well, Pope Francis issued a this and that," and you're like, "Oh, that sounds fancy. What is that?" So, <laughs> if you could explain sure, a little sure. bit and, on that. Yeah, well, a papal encyclical is really a, a letter to bishops, um, which is, also has a magisterial weight. It's part of the Pope's ordinary magisterium. It's uh, a teaching document, and it's usually connected with something that's uh, topical or current at the time um, that the Pope wants to uh, clarify and, and to to either produce or develop certain teachings or to um, draw attention to certain aspects of this particular issue. Uh, they've become more common only really relatively recently, Pope Leo the Thirteenth, after the turn of the 20th century. Um, they weren't actually all that common before then, uh, mm. but they have become more common. And it's sort of it sort of sets sort of halfway between all of the papal documents in terms of authority. At the bottom is uh, the papal audiences and then homilies. At the top are infallible uh, declarations on, on doctrine. Um, and sort of in the middle of these papal encyclicals, which are, as I say, part of magisterium, but not as weighty as uh, an infallible dogma, for example. So an encyclical is more of a more of a, a a teaching document, more just kind of expounding upon the tradition and and things that have gone before, right? right? Um, right. So what what other kinds of papal documents are there? You mentioned the pap- papal audiences, which are speeches, basically that the Pope gives. Uh, what else? Are, what other uh, types of documents are there? Yes. Well, then you have, as I say, you have the homilies the Pope gives, or, or, or messages that he often gives. Uh, uh, at special occasions or, or on the papal masses or so forth. Then come apostolic exhortations, which often follow, uh, these days, they often follow a synod. You have to get a post-synodal apostolic exhortation, but not always. They come at different t- times. Then you have an apostolic letter, uh, which is where the motu proprios come, because they're often accompanied by an apostolic letter that's issued motu proprio, is what they say, so it's issued on the Pope's own initiative. So that's the, uh, where the papal decree sits. Then you have the papal encyclicals. And then you have an apostolic constitution. Now, an apostolic constitution is, is far more wide-ranging. It can be quite significant in terms of changing, say, a church institution. We have one coming up regarding the Roman Curia. Uh, the, the Vatican has been um, devising a, a new apostolic constitution for the Roman Curia for the past eight years, really, of, of this pontificate. Um, and so that'll be that'll have will contain fundamental changes to the way the curia is run and and structured. Um, so that's that's a very serious uh, document. And then you have uh, a papal bull, which which um, again is is a very uh, significant document. Uh, it was widely used up until the 19th century. They're not really used now, um, and they can affirm a wide variety of of things, a wide variety of teachings or whatever. Um, and then you have infallible, infallible uh, dogmas, infallible declarations, um, and these are very rare. They're very rarely um, implemented. In fact, I think the last one was in 1854, or, or maybe, maybe a bit sooner than that. But certainly, that was one of the, the most recent. Yeah. Mm. So uh, I noticed a lot of the uh, the ones in the middle there. Well, yeah, uh, in the middle there, they start with the word apostolic. Uh, could you just explain briefly why uh, we call these, you know, letters, exhortations, constitutions, why they're all called apostolic? Yes, well, of course, the Church is apostolic, and, and a lot of what the Pope does 
is apostolic. That is considered um, uh, St. Peter was the, you know, the first uh, of the apostles. So that that's why it's become it's called apostolic, and that's um, obviously connected to the Pope. A lot of what around the Pope is called that, of course, is the apostolic palace. The Pope goes on apostolic voyages and trips abroad, and so that that essentially is why. Uh, that that word is used in in common with uh, the, the papal office and the pontificate. If you're just joining us this morning, we have Edward Penton on the line with us from Roma in Italia, uh, talking to us about papal documents. Um, and uh, like I said before the break, it's a lot more exciting and a lot more interesting than you might think. You might think documents, ugh, just a bunch of words, but uh, there's actually a lot of nuance and a lot of... Um, exciting differences uh, that go on with papal documents. Uh, and of course, the topic, as we said, on everyone's mind is what motu proprios are. And I was uh, curious, uh, before we go to the break, if you could give us some examples of different motu proprios uh, throughout time and sort of how how common are they? Sure. Well, um, they've been very common under Pope Francis, and that's partly connected with with the reform agenda of, the, of, of Francis. I mean, he's, he was basically elected on the on the mandate of reforming all kinds of things. So he's put through 44 different uh, motu proprio, which includes statutes and new laws. And they, they can involve, for example, setting up the, the Commission for Protection of Minors. Uh, right. He set up one for that. He's, he set up another for uh, changing the nature and purpose of the Pontifical Academy for Life. Mm-hmm. Um, he also set up, he also sued a motu proprio to basically refound and some would say uh, seriously change in perhaps not a necessarily positive way with the Pontifical Institute for John Paul II, for John Paul II, um, on marriage and the family. And then also to institute Knights New Dicastries, he's implemented, uh, he's issued a motu proprio for that too. And Benedict issued, in comparisonly, uh, only very few, 13, in, in relation to, uh, in contrast to the 44 that Francis issued. And he did them, for example, to approve and publish the Compendium, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, hmm. and to establish something like the Pontifical Academy for Latin. And so he, he used it for, for those sort of things, um, but nothing quite like uh, Francis, who's used the motu proprio very much for reform. Right. And so so these motu proprios is something sort of that the Pope has to do to to change things, like you said, to, to change the nature and purpose of the, the Academy for Life, like you mentioned, to set up new dicasteries, right, things like that. These are a th- a kind of like the, the acts of, of governance a lot of times, right? Yes. I mean, they're often used to, for minor changes to law or procedure. That's, that's usually the, 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 the method in which it's used. And it goes back a long way. It goes back to 1484. That's the first mm. time a motor proprio was used, yeah. And and what was that? Uh, good question. I'm not quite sure. Going that long <laughs> way. Uh, <laughs> Got you off guard. Certainly something to do with yeah. Certainly something to do with some change to the law, the procedure, or perhaps to, to create some institution in the church. Um, so so those are the usual, usual ways of using uh, a motu proprio. Uh, but as I said, it's become more common. And and with Francis, I think it's I think Pope Francis sees them as quite a useful uh, instrument for for getting things through, because it's, it's obviously the Pope can do it on his own initiative. There doesn't have to be much uh, consultation, and they mm. can be done basically at, at whim, at the Pope's whim, and that's exactly what he's done over the past there few years. Go. 
There you go. So good. I think that we've got a good basis on what Motu Proprios are, and we'll talk a little bit more about a few of the uh, different types of documents, including papal infallibility. Uh, we'll discuss all those after the break. Uh, please stay with us here on Real Presence Live. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning on a beautiful Wednesday morning. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Honor your Father by word and deed, that a blessing from Him may come upon you. Sirach 3.8 Our priests guide us on the right path and teach us about our Catholic faith. At Real Presence Radio, we'd like to honor them for helping to deepen our relationship with Jesus. Each week on Real Presence Live, we honor our fathers with a dozen donuts generously donated by a local business. You can nominate your priest to receive special recognition by going to yourcatholicradiostation.com. And thank you to all our priests for your service to the Holy Catholic Church. Hi, this is Dr. Ryan Sapo with Lumen Vision in Fargo. Lumen Vision offers eye exams for the whole family, contact lenses, glasses, and vision therapy services. Our specialized vision therapy program works to improve how the eyes work together as a team. We work with our patients to improve reading difficulties, lazy eyes, eye turns, and focusing problems, which can be detrimental to performance in the classroom and on the job. You can learn more about our mission at Lumen.Vision. Lumen Vision is a proud sponsor of the Real Presence Radio Network. Are all sins forgivable, even suicide? I'm Father Chris Alar. Jesus said that there's only one unforgivable sin, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Basically, that means dying without repenting. But how can someone who dies suddenly, such as by suicide, have a chance to repent of any sins? Jesus tells St. Faustina that he comes to the soul at death and gives them three opportunities to repent. Regarding suicide, Catechism 2283 says, By ways known to him alone, God offers them the opportunity for repentance. In essence, the only unforgivable sin is not accepting the mercy of God. So to learn how to help your loved ones do just that, please visit suicideandhope.com. So I can personally pray for anyone you've lost. And to get our book, After Suicide, There's Hope for Them and You which helps with any kind of suffering or loss, not just suicide. I promise it will help. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. And welcome back, welcome back to Real Presence Live. Edward Penton on the phone from Rome uh, to talk a little bit about papal documents. A uh, hot topic lately, as always, especially, it seems, uh, during the pontificate of Pope Francis. Uh, we hear all of the different kinds of different documents. And another topic that always comes up is papal infallibility. And I think that's probably one of the most misunderstood uh, aspects of the role of the Pope, um, whether that's you know in in the secular world or even within the Catholic world, I think people really ha- don't have a good handle on what papal infallibility involves, what it entails, how it's invoked. Uh, so, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about how papal infallibility works? Sure. Well, papal infallibility is a dogma um, in which the Church states that, the, in virtue of the promise of, of Jesus to Peter, the Pope when appealing to his highest authority is preserved from the possibility of error or doctrine 
and this is initially given to the, to the church handed down in scripture and tradition. So this doctrine um, has existed for a long time. I mean, even though it's the First Vatican Council is defined dogmatically in 18, the council was 1869 to 1870, um, in a document passed to Eternus, it has actually been defended before that. So it has a long history of, of papal infallibility, but what it Often people think that that means the Pope is infallible on everything, and that's, that's not true. It's actually very few things that the Pope is, is infallible on, and those are um, the faith and morals when held by the whole Church. And these doctrines must be conformable with sacred scripture and apostolic traditions, where they must be divinely revealed. So as I say, these are, it's very rare that you get all of that, all those boxes ticked, as it were. And so there have been few... Um, infallible doctrines, and I think only since 1854 you've had two. Um, in 1854 you had the, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which is defined in, in that year, and then in 1950 you had the Assumption of Our Lady, uh, which is defined by Pius XII in 1950. So those are the last, really the only two, I think, in, in recent, at least in the last 150 years, 170 years. So so as I say, it's very rare um, that that is that is what the church teaches, and uh, it's often, often, as you say, um, misunderstood. So, uh, when, when would a pope invoke infallibility? Because, as you said, it's it's rarely used, and it's really rarely invoked. Like you said, there's really only two dogmas since papal infallibility was formally defined, right? That it's been invoked, mm-hmm. and that's been well over. 150 years uh, since papal infallibility was actually, you know, formally defined. So why is it so rarely used? Yeah. Well, because it has to be something that's sort of developed, like like um, the Immaculate Conception, the dogma. That was something that was was um, you know discussed and uh, going back really to the time of the apostles. I mean, this is something that has been part of the faith, but it's never been dogmatically defined, and until the Pope did that and spoke ex cathedra, which means that he speaks from uh, the seat of, of Peter, that that, is, that becomes um, an infallible doctrine, uh, formally defined. Uh, and that, uh, even when that was made in 1854, that was before uh, the First Vatican Council, so that really we've had only one that's been dogmatically defined according to, to the Council, and that was in 1950 in the Assumption of, mm. of Mary. So so that's that's what uh, that's how they sort of come about. Um, but it's not um, like a doctrine proposed by a pope has his own opinion, but it doesn't. It's, it's not solemnly proclaimed as a doctrine of the church. It may be rejected as false, even if it's a matter of faith and morals. So uh, you know, even though the pope might discuss or teach faith and morals, it doesn't mean they're always infallible. Only these mm. particular dogmas are. Mm. And that's that's a good note because uh, the secular media, especially, is great at, at coming out there and waving. Well, look what the Pope says you have to do now. You can never change this, right. and that, that's not how infallibility works. Right. Um, right. And and I think one of the things you know, as I keep uh, talking about, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that surrounds these. Is there a way that people can read these documents for themselves uh, just to get a better sense of of what what the Pope is actually saying, what his words actually are? Well, yes, it is a good idea to read them and and see what you know that they what they might speak to you, you know in your own life and and you might find them relevant or enlightening in your own way by reading them. 
even those that go back, you know, back a long time, maybe a hundred years ago, they can still be very um, a great teaching documents. In fact, the clarity of those documents by going back a hundred years or so um, can be very instructive and very helpful. So, um, so yes, it's very helpful to read these documents. They're still, they're still, you know, timely and 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 keep their keep their relevance in many ways. Not that human nature hasn't fundamentally changed in in all these years, mm-hmm. um, and so they're still very very helpful, I think, to a lot of people. And um, and they're, they're a treasure, really, to be to be read. Uh, I think, especially those older ones, which where the clarity of the teaching is so. It so, can be so helpful, especially these days when there's a lot of ambiguity about and, and certain amount of confusion. Right, right, and just uh, it's it's great uh, to to read, for example, some of the encyclicals of Pope Leo the Thirteenth, and just see how prophetic mm-hmm. a lot of what he said, because a lot of his encyclicals, well, his big one, um, Rerum Novarum, right, was about yeah. uh, social changes and things like that. that right. I'm sure at the time people are like this this crazy old pope he doesn't know what he's talking about but now we can yes, see a lot yes. of those prophecies come come to fruition right um Indeed. In he's, yeah. uh, so so those can be a, yeah. a great way uh, like you said still fruitful because human nature even though we like to pretend it's changed so much human nature is very much the same um and mm-hmm. people can read those by going to the Vatican's website vatican.va and they actually have a section where you can read back uh, through those encyclicals and in old documents like that, uh, is there? Are, what other ways would you suggest? Because some people might ha- have time to sit down and read through a full document, or sometimes you know it's full of um, language that might not be easy to understand at first glance. What would be some other ways that people can better understand what's actually in these documents? Yes, well, they, they, you can read commentaries on them, much as, as one might with the Bible. You know, read, read commentaries on certain passages of Scripture. You can read. Um, commentary on on various encyclicals, uh, but I think often just reading them straight. I mean, especially as I said, the older ones can be very helpful. I think some of the modern ones, especially from Pope Francis, um, one needs to look perhaps with more of a critical eye because they do tend to go into um, uh, social issues and prudential issues, which aren't necessarily um, connected like they were uh, with the more supernatural elements. I think that's that, that seems to be the case. But even so, I mean, they can be very helpful and very relevant to our times, and certainly uh, what Pope Francis has written um, are, are, do, do relate to our times, obviously, uh, and so they can be useful. But yes, but I find particularly the older ones are good because, as I say, they're very clear and and a real, real uh, teaching documents in terms of, you know, um, regarding our own salvation and, uh, and certainly the supernatural element. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, it's Well, it's morning for us, afternoon for you, but thank you for taking uh, time out of your day to join us this uh, today. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Excellent. And we'll send it up to Fargo now to get a preview of tomorrow's show uh, from Rachel. Coming up tomorrow on the Next Real Presence Live, Father James Gross and Father Jason Leffer will be hosting from the Grand Fork Studio. First, Nancy Gord and Father William Slattery will be talking about Catholic themes in The Giver. And then Austin Arts will be discussing how to live the Catholic faith in law school. And then Dave Zavoral will be celebrating tw- will be celebrating 20 years of Real Presence Radio. All this and more coming up on the next Real Presence Live, 9 to 11 a.m. Central, here on the Real Presence Radio Network. 
Awesome. Thank you for that, Rachel. We got a lot of exciting shows coming up, a lot of exciting guests, and it's just wonderful to be a part of Real Presence Radio. Um, just if you are local in the uh, Rochester listening area, Rochester, Austin, I want to put this call out there. If you have an apostolate that you're excited about, if you have something that you think would make a great interview for us on air, uh, reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. My email is nick at realpresenceradio.com uh, or nick at yourcatholicradiostation.com. So if you have anything like that that you can think of off the top of your head, um, people, you know, uh, maybe you think your pastor would make a great interview. Uh, it, like I said, an exciting apostolate. Please feel free to reach out. Uh, we'd love to have you on air. Always looking for exciting ways to share the faith and just share those resources in our community uh, with people who are, you know, uh, looking for ways to better live out their faith. Um, this this wonderful faith, you know, that the our our real presence live isn't just about in informing people about you know, um, uh, like catechism, right? It's also about giving resources and giving people ways to live out the faith. So if you have anything like that that you can think of, again, please send me an email at nick at realpresenceradio.com. I'd love to hear from you. Um, or even if you have some feedback on the show um, <laughs> when I'm on, please feel free to, to send me a message, and I will be happy to hear from you. Uh, a lot of exciting uh, things we talked about this morning, as I think any of our listeners can probably easily tell. My The most exciting thing was to be able to share a little bit about uh, the Byzantine uh, Rite, uh, my Ukrainian Catholic faith, the Byzantine Catholic faith, with our listeners. Hopefully we can do some more of those interviews in the future, just to share uh, more on the differences and similarities. And as St. John Paul II said, uh, the Church is at its best when it breathes with both lungs when it is drawing from both the deep well of tradition in the Western Church as well as the Eastern Catholic Churches, and that together is really what makes us one beautiful, big, happy family, one holy Catholic and apostolic Church. Again, thank you for joining me this morning on Real Presence Live. Look forward to joining you again. God bless. This has been Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Real Presence Live brings you inspirational stories of faith and a look at the good and holy things happening in our local area. Weekday mornings from 9 to 11 Central. Tune in for an encore of each show beginning Saturday morning at 6. Get the podcast any time of day or night at yourcatholicradiostation.com or on the Real Presence Radio app. And remember, you can be a part of the conversation through Facebook and Twitter. Real Presence Live, local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network.